Welcome to this APTA podcast. I'm Troy Elliott, and thanks for joining us. If you've been at all involved in any segment of post-acute care, you know that the past few years have been a time of significant change. Skilled nursing facilities and home health agencies are coming to grips with entirely new prospective payment systems. And while inpatient rehab facilities were spared significant shifts in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it's clear that CMS has its sights set on making changes there as well. What we've seen to date may only be the beginnings of a shift toward more uniformity in payment across post-acute care settings. Is that really the best idea for patients and outcomes? That's part of what's explored in a new first-of-its-kind study sponsored by APTA and the American Occupational Therapy Association. It's called the TOP study, which stands for Therapy Outcomes in Post-Acute Care Settings, and it's a big one an analysis of 1.4 million Medicare patients who received post-acute care in a SNF, an IRF, or through home health. Today, we're gonna to get an overview of the study, how it came to be, what researchers found, and the implications for both care and policy. So let's get right to it. Joining me today are Kathy Cholik, president of APTA Geriatrics and the owner of Living Well with Dementia, which provides consultation and education to improve the lives of aging adults, particularly people living with dementia. Dee Cornetti, president of the Home Health Academy of the APTA and co-owner of Cornetti and Craft Healthcare Solutions, which provides training, education, auditing, and outsourced OASIS and coding for the home health industry. Jason Falvey, Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science and in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Jason's also a board certified uh, in geriatric physical therapy and a well-known researcher who's been published in many of the top ranking rehab, geriatric and orthopedic journals. Bob Latz, a PT who's Chief Information Officer for Trinity Rehab Services and Chair of the Technology Special Interest Group of Health Policy and Administration, The Catalyst, otherwise known as HPA. Bob's also HPA's Technology and Innovation Director. And finally, Kara Gaynor, an attorney and APTA Director of Policy and Regulatory Affairs, who helps us explore the deep, dark mysteries of CMS and other regulatory agencies. Thanks everyone for being here today and helping us get a better handle on what this is all about. So I guess the best place to start is probably uh, at the beginning, right? So what prompted this study and how did APTA and AOTA come together to get it done? Well, I can start, Troy. Uh, this is Kara. APTA and AOTA commissioned this study because we saw that the current trend in payment system reform is the move from fee for service towards payment based on patient and disease characteristics and outcomes. And there's a variety of reform efforts already underway, like what we've seen with the patient-driven payment model and the patient-driven groupings model. So the two associations recognize that payment system reform is going to continue, possibly in the context of a unified post-acute care payment system. So the two associations, after a lot of discussion, decided to jointly commission a study in 2018 to examine the differences of patient populations who receive therapy services in the skilled nursing facility, home health, and inpatient rehab facility settings, and the resulting outcomes. 
And this information that we've collected via this study is invaluable in the two associations' efforts to articulate to policymakers how therapy affects outcomes in post-acute care and what policymakers need to consider as they explore future payment reforms in post-acute care. I've had a lot of conversations with Dee especially, so I'm sure Dee, you could provide additional input into kind of what prompted this study. Well, thanks, Kara. Yeah, Dee Cornetti, uh, president of the Home Health Academy of the APTA, and we've been very excited. We, as as the post-acute representative specialty components, uh, along with my colleagues from HPA, the Catalyst, and the uh, um, Academy of Geriatric Physical Therapy, um, it was increasingly important as we looked at payment reform um, and how that impacted the delivery or of services in our post-acute settings. Um, We've seen big changes in utilization, um, and we didn't have that, like Carol was saying, that hard and fast data um, that would say, what is the benefit of therapy? Regardless of how it fits into the payment model, how is that going to be, uh, you know, how are we going to ensure that uh, Medicare beneficiaries continue to receive the care that is warranted based on their presentation and their acuity? And so the, the top study um, and the commissioning of this study by APTA and AOTA has been nothing short of being cheer-led by everybody in our sections because we're really excited um, to, to know what we need to know so that it can inform future payment. Um, it can educate people, um, leaders, whether they be therapists or not in their particular post-acute settings, um, as well as arm frontline clinicians to know what the impact of our services are in these different settings, because they truly do vary. Um, so uh, I've been excited for it to come out. It's been a labor of love over the last couple of years, and I'm really excited to work alongside my colleagues and have Dr. Falvey involved in, in guiding and, and, um, and, and driving uh, the deliverables that have, that have resulted from this work. Tell, tell us, whoever can, tell us a little bit about how the research was actually conducted. I know that... Um, uh, I know that it was uh, a research was commissioned by the two organizations, but um, conducted by a research firm. Um, can you give us a little background about just what happened? Well, I'm happy to jump in there, Troy. This is Jason Falvey, uh, and thanks for the shout out earlier, Dee. I didn't want to uh, answer this question without some input from APTA, so I know Kara can uh, correct me if I get any of these pieces uh, a little out of sequence, but. Generally, this research was, you know, like uh, like was previously mentioned, commissioned by APTA and AOTA, um, and done by a research firm that has a lot of experience working with Medicare claims data. Um, so, if anybody in this audience and, and any of these listeners have worked with Medicare claims data, it's very daunting to put together millions and millions of records across multiple settings and be able to identify patients that were hospitalized, which are one Medicare claim file and then link them to entry into either a skilled nursing facility, a home health agency, or an inpatient rehab facility using additional claims and uh, payment data. And linking all those together and creating a common functional outcome across all three settings is another massive challenge uh, that our clinical and, and research expertise kind of all guided along the way. And Essentially, we were able to get a really good snapshot of who's using services in each setting, what their outcomes were both during an episode of care, which is something we, we have more data for 
um, with some internal facilities, some, some private companies have, have done this a lot with their own data, but really we've had a limited window up until now to look at what happens after people leave these facilities, after they leave a home health episode, after they leave a skilled nursing facility, and after they leave an inpatient rehab facility, and really being able to identify readmissions and outcomes that occur after those episodes is really critical to our understanding of value. This is Bob. I'm just going to add on top of what Jason's saying. And I just wanted to reiterate the 1.4 million episodes that we're talking about here. These are a lot of cases. And so, yes, it was a daunting study, but I do think it gives us some good information. And I just wanted to bring that point forward once more. Yeah, Bob, this is Dee again, and I think that really what, what bears emphasis is that the time period this study was done is, is prior to any uh, payment methodology changes that we're now living in, in, in the post-acute settings, the PDGM and the PDPM that Kara um, uh, commented about or made, made mention of. And so what we're, we're looking at is usual care and what we can expect to see from that care before any impact or influence of things like the pandemic or um, uh, the, the changes in payment that, that altered, uh, you know, in some people's mind, we were no longer paying for the therapy when in fact it was bundled into that current payment methodology. And so it's probably the cleanest picture of what we have, what was normal care. So I think that that bears a little bit of emphasis as well. Sure. And I'm just going to add on top of that, when you bring up the pandemic, trying to do the analysis of, of what effect did the pandemic have, that would have created all kinds of problems. So I, I agree that this gives clean information about the, the cases that were looked at and, and just important. Well, let's get right down to it. So um, my understanding is that there are three uh, major findings uh, supported by the, the data that uh, uh, surfaced in the study. Um, anybody wanna describe what those some of those findings were? All right, I'm not sure who's gonna go first. So I'm gonna jump in here. I, I know that one of the big findings was that the more therapy that was provided, the lower the risk of readmission, hospital readmission. I think that that's a huge piece. Readmissions, we know are um, additional cost drivers of the entire healthcare system. And I think that that's a huge point. I'll let others address the other points as well. Sure, and this is Kathy Cholik. One of the things that I um, see as a really big takeaway here is something we always thought but never really could prove, but is that each group that goes to different places looks different, right? It's a different population that goes to an inpatient rehab facility, then may go to SNF, then may go to right to home health. And so part of the, it's not always an apples apples to comparison if you look at a single diagnosis, right? It could be someone with CHF, but CHF goes to all places, but it, then you cross-reference the different pieces of age and sex and dual eligibility, and all of those factors may impact what services they have at home to support them, right? So those impact how much care they're getting at the different level of care that they need, whether it be inpatient rehab, SNF, or home health. Yeah, and you know the thing that I, that was my big takeaway is we always I always tell people when you think of uh, therapy, think of the F word, right? Um, and a lot of people snicker or chuckle when I say that, but 
it, the word is function. And, and what we see is that we know that therapy intensity it has a positive correlation to improvement in functional status in patients, regardless of setting, regardless of diagnosis, right? And so if we can show that we can improve function for patients at different, at different levels of disease acuity or comorbidities, and we can do that in any post-acute setting after they've been deli- uh, discharged from a hospital, whether it be to an ERF, a SNF, or a home health, then we truly are your functional improvement specialist. And, and anything I've learned from Medicare over the years is that they understand how important function is for patients. And then to go back to what Bob said, to tie into that, that that has an impact on hospital readmission and has the ability to, to, to lower that, that risk, that's huge. That's prognostic, Almoni. You're, you're telling me if I order therapy um, in my post-acute setting uh, and um, that I'm discharged to, and that's going to have an impact on whether or not I'm readmitted to the hospital within a 30-day window or so, that should get everybody referred to, to therapy at some point, because that's one of the biggest costs, right? And that's one of the most deleterious effects that can happen to a patient is to end up back in the hospital, right? Do not pass go, do not collect your $200, you know, you don't get to go forward, you're kind of going back, something has happened. And so to me, that that impact on function is huge. I think what you're bringing up there, D, is a big deal, because um, yes, readmissions matter, but to me as an individual, or if you're talking about my mom, function matters to them. And I just think that's key to keep bringing that forward. Um, and I think perhaps maybe the less, you know, what I would call sexy finding of the study, but perhaps the most critically important was looking not just at the differences in diagnoses that are going to each of the settings, but how complex the patients are that rehabilitation therapists are asked to treat. The high proportions of dementia and depression, uh, the fact that nearly one in five of these patients had a, had a critical illness, was in the ICU for one or more days prior to entering these post-acute care settings. Um, and as we know with COVID, there's been a lot more attention on the, the dysfunction that occurs when people are recovering from a critical illness. So we're layering that on top of cognitive impairment we're layering that on top of the, the, you know, the normal age-related changes in function that are going on. And we're layering that on top of the, the deficits associated with acute hospitalization and immobility. So therapists are being tasked with treating and managing not healthy patients with a single orthopedic concern, but really complex older adults that have many, many medical concerns. And we're successfully able to improve function in those patients we're successfully able to meet all of their needs and be able to help, you know, not just improve their function, but also, you know, set them up for success so they're not being readmitted to the hospital. Um, I think just knowing, you know, how complex those patients are is really important for us to go to our policymaking you know, partners and say, you know, these are patients who, if we don't intervene and make, you know, good gains, these are patients that have very high risk for long-term nursing home admission, which strains Medicaid and Medicare uh, to a greater extent than maybe the upfront cost of therapy would. 
Jason, thanks for the shout out for how complex working with older adults is, because that's what geriatrics and the Academy of Geriatrics really looks at, right? We know that a, a, there are very few straightforward diagnoses that we um, and we get to see, and our, our people have lots of issues. And one of the other things when you look at it is some of the data on the people who didn't get a lot of therapy, to me, that also says, they probably weren't ready for it, right? And that, I mean, part of, they were medically fragile and that's part of why they ended up going back to the hospital. And so, you know, PTs have the ability to see who should be getting therapy and how much. And I wanted to add that um, it's interesting because part of the findings seem to um, um, say, yes, it all works and it works very well, but that there are sort of separate well, overlapping, if you will, constellations of patient populations, um, a constellation of diagnoses, constellation of demographic factors in each of these settings that makes it um, challenging to apply a one-size-fits-all kind of approach to um, what, the best, uh, uh, what the best way to pay for or organize that that therapy is. So it's almost doing, it's almost by virtue of the fact that the, the study was so kind of global in nature that it was able to tease out these um, sort of differences that support um, uh, uh, different approaches to, to potentially different approaches to payment for these. Um, what did you, did any of you see any, we've talked about some of the similarities, we've talked about so, some of the shared challenges in terms of um, Alzheimer's, uh, Alzheimer's dementia and things like that. Where did you see some of the biggest differences between some of these patient populations? This is Bob, and I'm going to jump in. And first, I'm going to uh, share, Troy, part of what you're bringing up is exactly what Kathy was talking about earlier, and was such an excellent point in that this study confirmed what a lot of us have talked about in the past, that these, these populations are different in each of the settings. In the skilled nursing facility setting, for instance, we see, um, you know, patients over 85 years of age that's, that's the group that we see more there than the other two settings. The other piece I'll bring up, uh, Jason was just talking about the complexity of individuals and um, both Dee and Kathy talked about return to hospitals as well. And I just wanted to bring up when we're thinking about people with all these complex medical um, processes who are taking multiple different medications, who are at home and they're at a stable level, then they go into a hospital, then they go into a skilled nursing facility. Each of those may readjust their medications. Then they go to home and those medications get readjusted again. All of that has a factor related to that cognitive status and creates even more complexity with working with those individuals. And so um, some of the different things that I saw, yes, the, the age was one of the big ones, but also just the complexity of, of in, um, medical cases. And you know, the thing that, that I took away, and I like that this study was able to tease out, is um, that uh, dispositioning patients really should be based on their presentation, right? And I think there was a study published within the last 12 months that talked about the role of the therapist in, in, in identifying what is the correct setting. Um, and Jason, you may be able to help reference that, that publication, the correct setting following hospital discharge. I think this clearly, uh, you know, sends a signal 
signal that we need to work in post-acute settings more collaboratively with our inpatient and acute care setting um, colleagues to help decide what is going to be the best setting based on this patient's presentation to be able to tap into those functional improvements that we can make if we have them in the right environment. I, uh, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. Um, and I guess maybe Kara is the person to ask this question too, is, is what happens What happens next? Uh, you released this summary in the chart book and there's lots of detail in there. That's all great. But how do the two organizations want to leverage the study's findings? Uh, and you know, what do you think are the policy implications here? Thanks, Troy. Right, so in addition to sharing a study summary and the chart book, APTA and AOTA are also starting to share the findings via uh, avenues such as this, a podcast. Uh, AOTA is also sharing an overview of the findings at their conference this spring. We'll be presenting jointly at other conferences being convened by other therapy stakeholders who would have an interest in this data. So identifying opportunities to share and disseminate the findings via conferences or webinars or podcasts is something that we will continue to pursue. We'll also be sharing the study summary and chart book with the various post-acute care therapy stakeholders via email and making sure that they, they saw what we recently released. In terms of next steps, we also will be developing what we can call research briefs or policy briefs that are one to two pages that very succinctly summarize the study findings, uh, the two associations have talked about developing one pagers that are specific to each setting and can be easily digestible by policymakers because the, the end goal is that we share these findings with Congress and CMS and the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission who are all looking at developing a new payment system like a unified payment system across the post-acute care settings and it's critical that they incorporate this data into their thinking and their analysis as they approach this development of a new system. So we will be setting up meetings with uh, those three entities that I mentioned. We're also talking about hosting a congressional briefing, whether that's in 2021 or beyond. So there's a lot of avenues for us to share these findings and, and we'll be taking advantage of all of those. As everyone has already indicated, clearly this study provides clear evidence that physical and occupational therapy improves patient outcomes in these three post-acute care settings. And it shows there's significant differences in these patient populations. So we want to ensure that Congress and CMS and the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission approach the development of a unified payment system or any other payment system thoughtfully and slowly and are taking time to ensure that adequate incentives and safeguards are available to encourage appropriate and adequate physical and occupational therapy in these post-acute care settings. Having this data available that clearly artic articulates the value of therapy is critical to our advocacy efforts as we work with policymakers moving forward and we're thrilled that we now have this available at our fingertips and at our disposal. Yeah, I mean, I would love to just add a little bit to that. Uh, I think that was a really great summary, Kara. Um, I, I think 
the findings that I, I think we're really going to emphasize as we go forward are the potentials for harm to patients. And so we can see very clearly in our data, the patients who received the very fewest minutes of therapy, the bottom 10 and 20 percentile, those patients were so, so sensitive to harms. The, the increase in readmission risk um, was, was very sharp um, when you dropped below um, you know, the typical amount of therapy, that middle, that middle 50%. Um, the functional gains also dropped very sharply when you started cutting therapy very aggressively. Um, and while that might not be a reality for some of our orthopedic patients, for some of the patients that we don't have clear rehab protocols for, like heart failure or like COPD, which are some of the most common diagnoses seen in home care, for example, um, there's there often you know, a lot of debate over how much therapy to give to those patients and a high amount of variability in between agencies. And now this gives us evidence to go forth and say, we should not be incentivizing agencies to cut therapy aggressively or be reducing payments to the point where agencies feel like they have to cut therapy to be able to be competitive financially, um, because that could cause some serious patient harms. And I think too, you know, now layered on top of that, we have PASC, right? We have um, a long COVID that is going to get factored into that whole equation too, and we and 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 we generally don't don't quite know. Which brings me to the question I wanted to ask you, Jason. The the summary um, uh, describes this study as almost a, a a launching pad for further research, and I wonder if you had thoughts about where what those directions might be. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And certainly any study like this where we're delving into so much data, we really consider this, you know, hypothesis generating. It gives us some great information um, and it gives us some really good top line results to say which patients, you know, um, should go to which setting, you know, where, where should they, you know, what, what do these patients generally look like? And, and, you know, if we have patients that have really significant needs and can't participate, now we have a better idea to defend you know, what, what the differences in those populations are. But going forward, I think we really have to start thinking about what is the value of therapy um, on individual patients? So how do we identify which patients, you know, when you have them in front of you are going to benefit the most from therapy and how much therapy should we give them? Because the relationship that more is better, you know, for all of our data kind of is, true to a point once we get to the, you know, the typical 50th or 60th percentile of the data, and then the effect of intensive therapy um, kind of fizzles out. We don't, you know, delivering too much therapy is also a risk. So determining for which patients that aggressive intensive therapy, um, and I know Kathy will probably jump in and uh, you know, correct me on my use of intensive there. Um, you know, and I think it's clear from the Medicare data, we can, we can only measure minutes and we can't measure what is being done. So I think the future studies are not only getting the minutes of therapy right for the right patient at the right time in the right setting, but also figuring out the content of what that therapy needs to look like um, to maximize outcomes and look even further beyond um, these post-acute care settings and look and see, are we impacting the number of days these patients are spending at home after they leave, which is something I have some interest in as a researcher. I mean, it's certainly a patient-centered goal for, for most of our older adults is to be home and, and healthy and be able to participate in activities that they really enjoy doing. So yeah, so that's 
future directions for research, but I think there are probably implications right now for uh, PTs and PTAs in all these settings. And so I'll throw it out to all of you to, to uh, comment on what you think the, the lessons and the, and the takeaways are for uh, these PTs working in these um, post-acute care settings right now. This is Kathy. I think one of the key things when you look at the older adult population is clearly they're not monolithic, right? And so you need to look at that person with that diagnosis who came from what kind of environment um, and has what kind of comorbidities and may be frail or not frail and, and really look at the individual in front of you and decide where they fall in that intensity um, spectrum that Jason was talking about. It's not just quantity of minutes, which is one thing we have really from here, but how intense is the therapy you're giving within that session? Are they actually working at a, a measure of heart rate that shows you that they're getting physical changes? Are you actually using one repetition max and deciding your strength? But also then recognizing that some people may be able to do small bits of that over time, which may look more like a sniff environment versus an intense three day, uh, three hours a day that you're going to get in the earth um, versus a lot more spread out perhaps over home health. And they're all very appropriate. So when you look at this person in front of you, deciding what is best for them in that moment and using the therapist's judgment um, and helping determine the intensity therapy is really important. This is Bob, and I'm just going to add on to that. I think Kathy's right on target. Um, we need to, as clinicians, take that patient-centered view. I think we do need to be aware of what Jason was describing with the harm if we don't provide therapy there and the risk that comes with that. And it may be based upon the, um, the complexity of the individual at that time, but it is still something, just like Kathy's describing, as a clinician, when I'm in front of that person, what does this person need at this time based upon my assessment? And I think we need to know our processes. We need to know our goals, the patient's goals, and we need to focus and work on those for this person. And the research will then continue to show, just like we've seen here, the benefits of therapy improving function. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with you, Bob and Kathy. You know, the the it's almost like we don't have to imagine how that person functions as they sit in front of us in home care, right? We are in their natural environment. We are seeing them in the environment that they have to live and function. And so understanding uh, that, you know, uh, that they have to be able to, to meet their ADL responsibilities, their IADL responsibilities, their mobility uh, um, uh, requirements. Uh, do they have a, a social support or a conducive environment that is barrier free for them? These are things that practicing at the top of our license as clinicians, we should be taking that holistic view of the patient and, we, and, and asking them and keeping them in front of us. What is it that you want and need to be able to do to function in this home environment? There's so much to that. In addition to the, the delivery of the therapy, uh, the intensity, the duration of it, extremely important. But what is it? You know, every, I always tell every home care therapist, and, but it should be every post-acute therapist, what is it that I need to provide this patient that is essential to prevent a, re, a return to a higher cost center of care? 
right? Emergent, urgent care, hospitalization. What am I going to do? Reduce risks. That is going to be a measurable outcome for everybody, right? Reduction in rehospitalizations. And so that should be driving us, right? Not a data point on an OASIS or an MDS, right? Or an EarthPi. It should be what is going to help this person 30, 60 days, 90 days beyond this to continue to be successful with a high quality of life in the environment in which they want to live, which they have to function. And Dee, adding on to that, it's it's that piece of the prevention component, but also then matching it to what matters most, right? Sometimes you have 18 different directions you could go to uh, to kind of minimize risk and, and work on things, but keeping it in function and looking at what is important to them in that moment, they will let you know what they need to do to be able to stay or get to whatever environment it is. And if we're prioritizing that based on their um, determination, I think then everything really can fall into place. And this is Bob, I just think that piece and knowing the, the research, especially this research that, that just came out, putting those two together is just, it's awesome for us and for the patient. Yeah, no, I mean, I have to echo that as a researcher, you know, like the statistical, you know, pieces of this mean that we're describing, you know, the average patient in each one of these settings and averages. It doesn't mean that the data should replace your clinical judgment of the patient in front of you. The, the data is there to complement clinical judgment. Um, so we certainly don't want the data to, you know, dictate exactly what you do for this patient, but it should make you, you know, give a second thought to, and does this patient really need an extra six visits of therapy to put them on the really high end? Or, you know, would they do better if we spread out these 12 visits over time, for example? Um, and then Medicare data as a limitation also doesn't describe really important things that Kathy was kind of hinting at, like food insecurity or social isolation or caregiver supports or socioeconomic disadvantage that you know, definitely influence, you know, the number of visits we provide and how we provide care. Um, so all in all, like this data should help guide clinical decisions, but it shouldn't be dictate those clinical decisions. And I think, you know, all of us here have clinical experience on top of our, our research experience. And I think it's really important that we meld those two together and one doesn't drive the other. Well, thank you, Dee, Kathy, Bob, Jason and Kara, uh, thanks for helping us understand the study. Obviously, this is uh, going to be an extremely important tool for both the physical and occupational therapy professions as APTA and AOTA work together for, uh, you know, for payment systems that uh, leverage clinical decision making of PTs and uh, make sense for patients. So just as a reminder, you can access a study a summary and chart book with more details, much more details on the top study at APTA.org. Just search TOPS, all caps, T-O-P-S, in the APTA website search bar. Uh, of course, that's not all you'll find at APTA.org. So definitely check us out and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. It's uh, at APTA tweets. And thank you for listening. APTA podcasts like this one are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. I'm Troy Elliott, and thanks for listening.